Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stats, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and it is time for everyone's favorite episode of the year, the 10 best books of 2023 list. I brought in two guests this year to help me put this list together. Our first guest is Adam Fitcavage. He is the creator and host of The Debutiful Podcast, a literary podcast that focuses on debut authors and their first books. I'm also joined by MJ Franklin. He is an editor at The New York Times Book Review. Very fancy stuff. What you need to know about both MJ and Adam is that they are serious professional readers, and between the three of us, we have read hundreds of books this year to help us put together our very own top 10. We also talk about what we saw in the year of books in 2023, our predictions for next year, and we share a handful of titles that we're the most excited about for 2024. Get your pen and paper ready. The book recommendations will be flying, or you can just click the link in the show notes to find every single book we talk about on today's episode. Don't forget our book club discussion will happen next week on Wednesday, December 27th. We will be talking about William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet with Farah Kareem Cooper. If you love this show and you want inside access to it, join the Stacks Pack by going to patreon.com slash the stacks. If you join now, in addition to getting bonus episodes, access to our Discord channel and our monthly book club meetups, you also get our reading tracker and the ability to vote in our very own literary awards, the Stackies. Plus, by joining the Stacks Pack, you get the most important perk of all, supporting me, an independent podcaster, making a super niche show about all the best books that have ever been written. Shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Beth Pierce, Emily Henderson, Cassie Mobetta Living, Sue Bowman, and Jesse E.C. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack, and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. Could not do it without y'all. Okay, now it is time to name the 10 best books of 2023 with Adam Vitcavage and MJ Franklin. All right, everyone, it's time for all of y'all's favorite episode of the year, the 10 
best books of 2023, according to me and whoever I decide to bring on to give their opinion. This list is always chaos in the best possible way, and I am thrilled because I am joined by two super-duper readers. One is Adam Fitcavage, who is the creator and host of the podcast Day Beautiful, which is all about debut books. I think, and I think I'm allowed to say this, it is the best book podcast title ever, and I'm really partial to the sacks, but Day Beautiful is maybe the greatest thing I've ever heard. Adam, welcome. Tracy, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I thought of it years ago when I was working for the government in a gray cubicle, and it gave me hope. And I'm glad it's it gives other I people. Did enjoyment. not know we invited the feds here. I feel like we might have to rescind your invitation. I no longer work for the government. Uh, okay, I have to preface that. You. Thank you, thank you. Um, and then our other guest is MJ Franklin. He is an editor at the New York Times Book Review. He's all of our bookish dreams. He's living the bookish life. I also have an extra affinity for MJ because he is an identical twin. So I like to think that I could be his mother. Uh, <laughs> though we're probably the same age. So I don't think it's possible, but I, I like that for us. MJ, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I have listened and loved your show and we've spoken on other podcasts, but this yes. is my first time here. So thank you for having me. And then I'm so excited. Adam, I am also just a huge fan and we follow each other online, um, but we've never met. And so like, this is just like, a, I'm just so excited for this conversation. I'm so excited too. Um, so people, we're going to give you our best books. I don't, we don't know each other's books. So it could get weird because what if someone says a book I hate and then I have to fight them? That will happen. <laughs> um, so nobody knows each other's books and we're going to give you each give you three. And I'm hoping that at some point we're going to realize that we all have a same shared book. I think we do. I don't know. We'll see. Um, anyways, that being said, before we get into that, I just want to do a quick like intro of each of you from yourself. Can you each kind of just tell us your reading tastes, what books you like, what things you're drawn to? Because that always informs these lists. I think so often like these best lists, it's like, this is the best book, but it's like, oh, well, I don't read romance ever. So how could this be the best list if we're not, you know? So whatever that is, whatever you extra love or whatever you read a lot of, and then whatever you maybe don't read as much of. You can start, Adam. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. And thanks again for having me. I read, I guess, literary fiction in quotes, like whatever okay. that means, right? Okay. <laughs> um, I like – the books I like are all about vibes. Like maybe not a lot happens. It's okay. just like they feel sexy. They <laughs> a deal a lot with like siblings and motherhood I've discovered mm. over the past few years. Um, Interesting. Uh, a lot of like family turmoil and then found family. But uh, definitely what I care most about is like the writing and how cozy I feel. And that can mean many things. And you read a lot of debuts. A lot of debuts. Yeah. Debutiful. Um, one of the books I have in the docket is, I guess, a debut, but not one that Debutiful would normally cover. So we'll see okay. if, uh, if we get to recommending that. But yeah. Okay. Mostly debut literary fiction and memoirs. Okay. Got it. And what about you, MJ? Yeah, I think Adam and I, we have similar taste because I am also a fiction girly through and through. <laughs> um, but I have noticed that uh, like what I'm gravitating toward in fiction kind of changes year over year. And I think it's just like my mood and vibes. Um, usually always I love, similar to Adam, vibey, kind of sad nothing totally happens a lot of character driven stories um a lot of like psychological deep dives and a lot of um yeah just like interior stories and like i love looking at like great writing and lush writing 
This year, though, I feel like I've been drawn a lot to plot. I think that's Yay! for a few reasons. Um, I think just like the plots of the stories being published this year are phenomenal. And then also, I'm sure both of you feel this way. We read so much for work that in my personal reading, I want to keep up or in my personal life. I want to maintain the habit of reading, but I don't want it to feel like work. And so, yeah. so this year I've been gravitating toward a lot of books that feel like watching TV. <laughs> Something that you just like that pulls you in that like does not let you out of its grasp. Still really smart, but just like it, it just it sinks its teeth in you and can't let go. Can you tell us a title of a book that fits that that's not on your best list? Uh, yes. So one of those books is My Murder by Katie Williams, which is mm. about this like futuristic world where like humans are able to be cloned. And the book opens with a woman saying like she doesn't feel right in her body. And that's because she was murdered as part of this killing spree that a serial killer went on. And then her consciousness oh. was cloned and put in another body. But something is askew and it's kind of like her fitting in to her surroundings and stepping back into her life, but she's different. And you're trying to figure out the mystery of what was going on with the serial killer. And so that is one of those things, again, like character driven, she's trying to fit back into her life. But like right. that plot setup is spectacular. I <laughs> love so, it. I love it. I love it. I love plot. Um, so people already know this about me, but let me just say it in case you're new here. I am a nonfiction girly through and through. And this year in particular, I'm judging a nonfiction prize for the LA Times. So I have been reading a ton of 2023 nonfiction. Some of it has been horrible. <laughs> Some of it has been great, but it's just a lot. I basically stopped reading any fiction that wasn't for the Stacks Book Club in May and have not read. So like, I don't know any fiction books this year, which is part of the reason I wanted to bring you two on because I know you both read fiction. And I would hate for this list to just be me being like, well, there's this investigative <laughs> journalism book. But when I do read fiction, I do like a lot of plot. I like a lot of setup. I don't, I like character, but I don't like characters when nothing happens. Like, I don't care how great your characters are. <laughs> if they're just like thinking in the woods, like I cannot be with them like I'm thinking enough in my own brain um but so that's that's sort those are sort of my biases and I also read like a ton of books by authors of color queer authors authors who are disabled marginalized in whatever way that the society wants to marginalize people um so so those are sort of my my biases um MJ I want to ask you about the New York Times list Yes. You guys do a list of 100 most notable books, but then you do the big bad boy of lists, <laughs> which is the New York Times top 10, five fiction, five nonfiction. Can you tell us a little bit about how the list comes to be? Yes. So I love this question because coming up with the list is probably like the single most fun thing that we do all year. <laughs> and that's just because it's a huge book club. That's like yeah. essentially what it is. Throughout the year, we're constantly just like reading um, just for our jobs. And then if something stands out to us as spectacular, we like flag it as a best books contender and then talk about it. Um, we meet Truly all year, it starts off at the beginning of the year, we meet about once a month. And then in the second half of the year, we meet about once a week. So it's just like a lot of reading. And someone will say, I love this book. I think it's great. And then we read it and talk about it. And throughout the year, um, books come on the list, books come off the list. Sometimes books come off the list and they come back on the list. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just like uh, a 
discussion about books that at least one person thinks is great. And I think that we're all like super smart and have great taste. And so like, that's, it's always a gift being able to be like, oh, this smart person that I love and respect loves this book. I'm going to read it too. Um, and then um, we talk about Wait, it. And I have to the- pause you. How mm-hmm. many of you are there and how many of you have to read a book for it to be in contention? Yes. That's a great question. Ooh, I want to say there are 15. Okay. It's all editors. Is that is that the rule? Yeah. So it's changed actually this year a little bit. It used to be because um, the book review had its own list and the critics had their own lists. And now it's kind of just like brought up the critics and the editors join, other staff members join. So we usually say just the staff. Got it. Um, I don't know if there is a number of like how many people have to love a book. Everyone reads it, be, like the, the books, um, or at least read into the books. And then yeah. um, usually there's a cohort, um, if, of not, if not everybody, a large cohort who like kind of champions the books and, and talk about it. Okay. You want to read into everything and or read everything because at the end of the day, we have to vote. And that's the end of the list, the process. It comes down to a vote. <laughs> and so you want to straight up vote yes or no? Is it ranked choice? This is the part that has never quite, I'm like, how do you pick? It's not a yes or no in that everyone gets like, we, we get to vote on what we'd say is our five. <laughs> and so I get five fiction, five nonfiction, um, like everyone. But so everyone gets a vote. And then at the end, we kind of see what consensus has emerged. <laughs> um, and then that's our list. What that means, though, is that sometimes like your absolute favorite book, the book that you have stumped for, does not make the list. That's that's happened to me (laughs) before. And it always feels bad because you're like, I love this book. But at the the end of the day, you're like, oh, it did get a serious consideration. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are these other books that are also great on this list, too. And so yeah, it's 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 a bl- it's also a blind vote as well. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a chaotic process, but it's really okay. really fun. I have one more follow up question, then I'll get off this. Yeah, <laughs> I had a sense that that was how the process worked a little bit because some of the books I've been like, oh, I understand how that book could win because it's not the most like polarizing book, and it's good, but I feel like it probably got a lot of votes, and so it just made it, you know, like that kind of thing, which I totally understand. My question is, when you all are doing book club, is there like persuasion going on? Are you like stumping for books? And if so, have you noticed that you don't have to name names, but that there are certain people who you work with whose books end up making it because they're particularly like persuasive book arguers? (laughs) That is a great question. Um, Everyone is trying to persuade everyone else on their books because like at the end of the day, it's like we, we're not just talking about like, here's a great book. We have to convince people to try to make the votes. Every time a book is nominated, like even if it seems like everyone like loves it, we are still arguing so vigorously. And that's because everyone can love it. But at the end of the day, it's only five fiction, five nonfiction. That's not a lot of space. And everyone reads a lot. We're so passionate about a great number of books. And so for me, it's always important to remember, I'm not just like preaching about a book. I'm trying to sell it. I'm trying to convince people that not only is it great, but it should be one of their five. So I'm always trying to argue and convince people. Um, other people are trying to convince everyone else um, to the point of whether there are people whose books always make the list because they're potentially great arguers. 
I don't know if there's any one person that has emerged. You definitely, though, figure out people's argumentative styles. Mm. And everyone on the desk is, like, <laughs> intimidatingly eloquent. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, yeah. I, like, I'll leave a meeting and be like, I don't know if I'm convinced on that book, but wow, I am convinced on your pitch. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. I love that. Okay, Adam, now you're in the hot seat. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to talk about debuts a little bit because I feel like I struggle, you know, I'm, I'm so obsessed with award season and with best books of the year list. Like it Mm -hmm. is my passion when, when the first national book awards list comes out, I'm like, fuck yes, let's go. I start deciding what I'm going to read. I get so excited. And I feel like what happens with debuts in my observation is that either there's this like push to put debuts on these lists to like celebrate a new author at the expense of maybe like an established author or there is like no debuts because they're just not that good yet. And like, that's okay. Cause it's your first book and like, hello. Um, so I'm wondering like wh- how you see debut books place in sort of the end of the year lists and awards and also, well, I'll ask the second part later. Go ahead. Sure. I think well, for one, I love like Center for Fiction does their first novel prize because yes. it's celebrating very specifically first novel. So I think we tweeted about this recently. Yeah. If they write YA and now they're writing an adult novel or short story collection or creative nonfiction. Uh, but I like that they like di- identify exactly what they're like nominating. Yeah. Like the National Book Award. I know, Just fiction. general. Yeah. And I feel uh, I feel there are some debuts that are damn good and that are masterpieces yeah and deserve their spot but i do feel and i i think this with like the emmys and oscars like the shiny new thing is always fun to nominate Mm -hmm. and so i don't know if awards are thinking about we're gonna slot in a debut to celebrate a new voice or not Mm -hmm. i don't know you're on a a, a, you're a judge do you look for the shiny new name on this so my, I'm a judge in a category that's very specific. Mm. The LA Times is really different than other prizes. They have like 13 or 14. Sure. And so my category is current interest, nonfiction. So mm. it's not biography. It's not history. It's not science because they have yeah. all of those categories. It's like memoir and politics and whatever. So like it's, I'm not thinking about who wrote it. I'm really thinking about like, does this book fit as a currently interesting book? They, at the LA Times, they do have a first fiction prize. So it's any first fiction. So that could be short stories or full-length novel. But I personally love that because I yeah. think first fiction is something that should be celebrated. But I don't know that necessarily first fiction is going to hold up against 10th fiction, you yeah. know? No, um, exactly. And some do. Like last year, they had a first, they had a first, a person's first fiction made it on the best fiction list. So, mm-hmm. um, okay. Also, I want to just know what about debuts is interesting to you. Why did you want to spend your whole life talking about debuts? I, I think it it came from when I was writing more freelance at outlets like Electric Lit or Lit Hub or The Millions or whatever. A lot of what I wanted to know in my conversations were those basic, hey, who are you? Mm. Like, that's like what drives you? How, like this took you 10 years to write. Why did you keep with it? And I feel if you're interviewing or when I was interviewing or chatting with, because I don't consider it an interview. Uh, when I was chatting with people who are on the third, fourth, fifth book, it was a lot of plot questions, which don't necessarily interest me, or a lot of talking about their cachet kind of mm-hmm, comes mm-hmm. into it. 
And I felt because I don't necessarily consider myself part of the literary world, or I didn't at the time. Uh, I think I faked it and got mm-hmm. into it somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that debuts have that imposter syndrome as well. Mm-hmm. And because, like, I talk to them before their books published, or right. before Goodreads blows up, or before right. their Kirkus right. review. And it's just like we're just vibing and talking about life and passion, as opposed mm-hmm. to they don't have their answers down pat yet, which yeah. is always fun. I love when I get to interview someone like really before their book and I'm like, oh, what? And they're like really struggling through the answer. Like, I love it here. I know you have. And then I hear them like on, you know, fresh air and I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, you were coached. (laughs) You had your meeting with your publicist. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I feel, yeah. And I think it goes back to my reading style with the vibes, right? Mm -hmm. I just like the person Mm -hmm. and the book is cool, but I want to know more about them than their main character's choice on page 54. I can definitely relate to this. I, I, You said that nicer. I actually just say that I'm very nosy. Uh, <laughs> just tell me everything. Yeah. Okay, let's get to our list, you guys. I'm so excited. Um, we will go in whatever order I decide, and I'm deciding that, Adam, you're going to go first with your first pick. All right. I will grab my book and show it to you all, oh even God, though I'm video so is not part of the podcast. I think it's no secret, or maybe it is, but my 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 list here is going to be very similar to the Debutiful yeah, list. Yeah, yeah, I figure. That's my list. Right. Uh, but All Night Pharmacy by Ruth Matievsky oh. is my number one book of the year, and I don't think it's getting the credit it deserves. I think I've it's, never even heard of it. Oh, <laughs> oh I will. I, no, no, that's fair. I, there's so many books out there. So yeah. it was real. Uh, it came out over the summer, and it's about like toxic sibling relationships. Uh, one sibling goes missing; the other is trying to find her. It's like a drug fueled, sexy vibe L.A. story. Oh, uh, with like immigration and coming through, and and where their place is in the world. But yeah, Ruth's writing is just all like, I don't know. I keep saying sexy vibes, but her book is the sexiest book I read, and it's not about sex at all. Okay. I love this. MJ, did you read it? I have not read that one, but when you said it's about toxic sibling relationships, I was like, count me in. Any type of like very fraught family dynamic, Mm -hmm. I will eat up that book. (laughs) I love um, it. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. MJ, you're next. So I'm going in a strange order because also, yeah, I feel like I've mentioned a bunch of books that I love. And there are some books I haven't mentioned. I don't want to be too repetitive. So I'm going to start off with a book that I don't think I've talked about, but I loved tremendously. And that is Burnham Wood. Oh. Um, uh, This is by Eleanor Catton, who won the Booker Prize for her novel, um, The Luminaries. And this is another one of those plot forward books, or so it seems. Um, the book follows a gorilla gardening collective. They're trying to reclaim unused land and plant crops and all of that stuff to kind of um, support like the ecosystem. And so it follows this group of people. It's made up of a leader, Mira, um, her assistant, Shelly. There's a bunch of other students, but those are the two main characters from that group. There is a former collective member turned journalist um, who's orbiting them. And then there is this weird, enigmatic billionaire who buys this plot of land, discovers that the Gorilla Collective is on it, and it's about their weird interactions. There is um, devious billionaires, there are drones, <laughs> there are looming or uh, past eco-disasters. But what I love about this book is that it sets up this like larger-than-life, like 
cartoonish almost plot. And then it kind of totally sidesteps it to explore Mm. the characters. Um, When I knew I was in for this book was at the start. And you see this really um, dynamic, like, tennis match and like internal tennis match for some of these characters. Mira is the leader. She knows that Shelly though kind of wants to leave. Shelly wants to leave, but she doesn't want to let her friend Mira down. And so Mira's like, I'm going to give Shelly space. While Mira is gone scouting out on a location, she sees this journalist, Tony, come by. She knows that Tony has this past relationship with Mira. And so she's like, maybe if I hook up with Tony, then Mira will be mad at me and she'll kick me out of the group and I don't have to leave because I want to become my own person, but I don't want to let this friend down. And so there are these like very rich, complicated interpersonal dynamics that are happening. And that is the thrust of the novel all staged around these like, yeah, again, larger than life plot. And so it's like introduces plot, character, 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 character. And then the end escalates so tremendously. It goes from (laughs) zero to 100. And I don't want to spoil anything. Do not. I, I will say I closed the book and I just sat there. My jaw was dropped and I was stunned. Oh my and God, I thought that I was it. another cool thing. Like I love a book that will like take you to 100 and be like, now yes. you deal with it. I'm done. Now it's your problem. <laughs> um, okay. And so that, that's uh, Burnham Wood by Eleanor Catton. I love it. I love it. Um, okay. One of the things that I loved this year were essay collections. I thought there were so many fantastic essay collections. I cannot name all of them. I'm going to do a quick honorable mention for Creep by Miriam Gerba, Biting the Hand by Julia Lee, Hijab Butch Blues by Lamia H. Loved all of those books. But my pick is Ordinary Notes by Christina Sharp. Beautiful essay collection. It's The pun is just sitting there for me. It is so sharp. The book is so sharp. Okay. She's Christina Sharp. The book is so sharp. It is a, it's got pictures. She takes these daily notes and the notes are published and they are, she's an academic. So she's really smart. And I have not read her other book in the week or one of her other books in the week, but everyone tells me it's really smart. And I was very intimidated even by this book. So I was like, this is a very smart person. And you know, sometimes you read like academics work and you're like, oh God, I just, it's too hard. <laughs> but because it's these little notes, everything is so digestible. She's critiquing uh, black representation a lot throughout the book. Like she talks about, you know, Brian Stevenson's lynching museum. She talks about Kara Walker. She talks about Claudia Rankine. She's a little mean to people throughout the book, which I love, but it's also like she like publishes like a letter from someone and like, she just is, it serves her point, but I have heard it described a little bit as a burn book. Um, I think that like if you're in the academic space, because academics all know each other, it might feel a little more personal. To me, it felt very critical and it didn't bother me. But I have heard academics be like, it was mean. And I was like, <laughs> like that's what I liked. Um, but it's also about her relationship with her mother who's passed away and, you know, about being like a reader and loving books. And, and there, like there's an image of her copy of beloved in the book that's like all flagged and worn in it's just so beautiful and I just found it to be like a really beautiful book and it's one of those books that when I read it it just was the right thing to read at the time and just felt really fulfilling and also again really critical and and I just love I just loved it I really really loved it 
I haven't read this book, but I have seen it in the bookstore and it is like such a document. It is like dense. It's yes. on photo paper, right? Yeah, because there's so, lots of pictures throughout. And it's like even the, the the physical object of this book has its this gravity to it. Yeah. And it reminds me of, have you read um, Just Us by Claudia Rankin? Yes. It, it seems very similar to that. Similar. And I loved Just Us. And so I'm excited to dive into this one. Oh, yeah. This one is really good. Um, Okay. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, we're back. Changing the order. MJ, what is your second pick? My second pick is The Fraud by Zadie Smith. Ooh, Um, okay. This this, made the New York Times 10. Yes, yes. And a lot of lists, too. Um, Yes, 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 yes. A lot. It is the return of Zadie Smith. And let's talk about plot. There's plot, 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 plot for days <laughs> in this book. I'm going to try to do it justice, but also be very quick. This follows a woman, Eliza Touche, who is the housekeeper and then also cousin 
of a famous writer, a famous Victorian writer, William Ainsworth. Um, Eliza is a writer herself, and she's trying to break into this like crowd, but because she's a woman, she is kind of cast aside. She's also poor. Um, her husband died and kind of left her penniless. And so the fact that she is the housekeeper for this cousin is kind of um, viewed as a generosity in itself. And so it's about her trying to become a writer, but she becomes obsessed with what is called the Tichborne trial, which the long story short is that there is this fraud trial of this man who claims to be the claimant of a family fortune. Um, there is a son who disappeared in a shipwreck and everyone presumed he was dead and his mother put out a reward for, to find him and this man surfaces. The trick is... The man has none of the background of the son who disappeared, is missing a tattoo that the son definitely had, does not know <laughs> the languages that the son knew, it looks different from the son. And so okay. it's this like fraud trial that becomes like this like cultural fixation and has a similar vibe and parallel to um, like MAGA and Trumpism and like mm. the fervor surrounding that. And so Eliza is kind of pulled into this trial and the news of it because she is interested in this man, Andrew Bogle, who's a formerly enslaved um, man who was one of the servants for one of the Tichborns, and it becomes a key witness in this trial. So again, a lot of plot. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. But what I loved about it is Xavier Smith has this like incredible ability to layer, 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 layer. And that's what this is. It's a historical novel. It's written in this Victorian idiom. It's exploring Trumpism. It's exploring class. It's exploring gender. It's exploring like slavery and transatlantic slavery. And uh, wow. it's exploring the stories that we tell and who we believe and why. It's about the power of crowds. It's all of these things. And yet, Zadie Smith is always funny. There is some, <laughs> there is some salacious sex that happens in this book. Um, Zadie is perceptive. She is funny. Like she, it, it, you hear this book and you think it's going to be weighed down by so much history, yeah. and yet it is so lively. The one thing I will say is this is an active reading experience. I started this book and I was trying to read it on the subway and I just couldn't get into it because so much was happening and I like mm. was not did not have my 100% focus and when I finally just like sat down and like did dedicated reading time during nothing else, I got so pulled into it. Um I think it's remarkable. It's it, it feels, I never knew what this phrase meant, like a major novel. Like so many people mm. say that. And I'm like, what does that mean? This is a book that makes a big swing that is thinking mm -hmm. through big ideas. It's mm -hmm. the return of a huge major novelist. And it feels like a major novel. Yeah. Um, so uh, I loved it. I love that. Okay, Adam, go ahead. I really loved the short story collection company by shannon sanders uh, which is a linked collection about a family and it's all about like lived in spaces and who's hosting and who's coming in and the interactions between family members and guests and it just felt i like linked short story collections because you know they read like novels you see the same characters over right. and over again but Shannon really nailed how to write a story every single time. Because mm. I feel like with certain short stories, you could feel this was for a page count. This yeah. was 
uh, et cetera, et cetera. But she really blew me away. I, I first encountered her when she won uh, the Dow Prize for Best Debut Short Story. I, I interviewed her back then. And just to see her career grow was super special. Mm-hmm. And then to see the book actually be good was great. Cause Is this her debut book? Yeah, it's her okay. debut book. And uh, so the, 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 Dow, the Robert J. Dow Prize is for the first story Sorry. published. I see. Just single story. Yeah. And then it's an anthology. But yeah, this, just how she understood family is, Mm -hmm. was super important to me. And seeing the subtle shade, promiscuity, promise, happiness without going over the top in each story just blew me away. I love that. This was, that was on my list of books I wanted to read this year until I had to yeah. quit fiction. It was literally like on my stack and I got the ask and I was like, okay, well, see you never. Mm-hmm. Um, no, my big 2024 goal is to go back and read the things I didn't get to read this year. The Zadie Smith is one of them. Like I didn't, I just didn't get to, you know, anyways, I don't have to explain to you guys. I already <laughs> did. Um, okay. My next pick is probably my favorite book of the year. It will be no surprise to listeners of this show, though I feel like this book did not get the justice it deserved in the le- end of year lists across the board. Because I think this book is fucking fantastic. It is called We Were Once a Family by Roxana Asgarian. It's about the Hart family murders. Um, Roxana did the show. So if you've listened to the show, you've heard the episode. But for those of you who haven't, um, it's about the Hart family murders, which people will remember was that two women, two white women adopted six black children um, and then they drove them off a cliff in 2018. Uh, the story was also notable because one of the children uh, was famous for a picture hugging a police officer with a sign that said like free hugs and he was crying. Roxana does the thing that everybody's like, I wish true crime could do this, which is like humanize the victims and tell their story in a context of how could this happen, right? Like, that's always a thing. Like, how could this happen? And she's literally like, well, you want to know how uh, child separation works in America, specifically in Texas, because that's where both sets of the siblings were from. She's like, here you go. This is who the judge was. This is how it works. This is what happened. This is why they were taken out of their home. This is why they weren't with their family. This is why these women were allowed to have these children. And of course, she also talks about the women who killed everyone, who murdered everyone, but she really focuses on the the birth families of these children and who they were before they were taken away. And there's one brother to one, because it's two separate sets, three siblings each. Um, there's a brother to one of the sets of siblings who is not taken away. He's old enough. He's like in juvenile detention or whatever. And so he doesn't end up getting taken away. So he's this like lone survivor child and he's where the title comes from. Um, The book is heartbreaking. The other thing that I love about the book, besides just like the great reporting and storytelling and just the premise in general, is that it's short. So I never, I never was like, okay, I'm ahead of her. Because so often with nonfiction, I sometimes find that I'm like, okay, I know exactly where we are and where we're going. And there's 95 pages left. So exactly what are you planning to do with those 95 pages? Not this book. It's like a tight, maybe 220, 250. And... I read it. I thought I was going to need to read it slowly because it was so intense, but it's one of those books that because it's so intense, you want to read it in a day or two because you actually can't sit with the story for too long. Like it's so intense and so devastating and so just like 
what the fuck are we doing to our children that I I feel that you have to read it quickly. And a lot of people I recommended it to were like, I was going to take it slow. And then I was finished it in 48 hours. Like, it's just, it's so good. So if I could press one book into people's hands, that's the one. I was going to say, this book sounds great, but I'm afraid now <laughs> to read it. It's a little bit depressing, but I mean, here's the thing. You know the outcome up front, and it's really less about the murders themselves and more about like the system that lets something like this happen. And so it's heartbreaking in that sense because you're you're sitting with the families of these children and like the way they were treated before the children taken away, but also after the murders. It's just like, ugh. but it's so good. If you start it, I think it'll be almost impossible to not finish it. Like it's one of those books where you're like, I don't even want to read this, but here I am awake at 3 a.m. because I got to finish. Mm-hmm. Writing this down, I'm going to be reading that ASAP. Yes, yes it's so good. Um, okay. Adam, you're next. Definitely. Can I call an audible and ask you two a question based on your – you can cut this too. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned, Tracy, that you you know read books super fast if they get you. And MJ, you mentioned having to – reading on the subway and then – uh, but you need a focus. What is your reading habits? I am just curious and we can Ooh. gladly cut this. No, like, let's leave I, it. I read like before work in bed. It's like my exercise. Like some uh-huh. people go to the gym. I read in bed before <laughs> I even get out. I read at lunch and then like at night I have like three reading sessions a day. I treat it like the gym. But how do you two read? I So I have two small children. Mm. Um, and so I that really changed my reading life. I sometimes read in the morning though sometimes I do get up and get on my Peloton. Um, I try to read at night. I do listen to a lot of audiobooks. So like I I like to go on a hike. There's a hike near where my kids go to school. So I'll drop them off and go on a hike and I'll listen to my audiobook at two point speed. So I'll get like two hours in of a book nice. um, or when I'm cooking or folding laundry. And then I, my best reading, it happens in the bathtub. Um, that is where I read the most, the, I'm the most focused or on an airplane because um, I never buy the Wi-Fi. So, but at home I read at night before bed. I try to read, my goal every day is to read a minimum of 10 pages, which I know sounds like not a lot for a person who reads a hundred plus books a year, mm-hmm. but I don't like to mi- not hit my goals. So I set my goal really low in the hopes that at least every day I will get 10 pages in. A lot of days I get 250 pages in. It's just like, that is my bare minimum that I ask of myself. That sounds like I'm still stunned by the two two x speed oh, audiobook. Yeah, like, how that. do you consume that much information that quickly? I'm a fast talker. I like fast talkers. When it's slow, <laughs> I just zone out. And I used to be like a 1.5, but in the last year, I've gotten really. It's like a skill. Like the more you do it, the faster you can go. I feel interesting. Um, I don't know if I have an organized way of reading for myself. And I specify that because I feel like I sep- I'm i like very obsessive about separating work reading from personal reading just because they're different modes of reading. Mm. When I'm reading for work, it's this kind of like more intense act. Like it's a type of searching that I'm doing. I'm like thinking about other things. I'm thinking about potential assignment, all, all of this other stuff. And when I'm doing personal reading, I really am just reading to like consume, embrace the story like to funnel into that book it's like I'm, one is reading for research another is reading for pleasure so I separate them out um mm-hmm. for my personal reading I don't have any organized system other than just like I always have a book nearby there are some mornings where I wake up and I'm like oh that was really good I'm gonna wake up early and finish this book before I have to get on the subway other times I'm like 
I um, I'm running late, so I'm just going to jump on the subway. And now that it's winter, I have coats that are big enough to fit little novels in my pocket. Um, so, <laughs> um, I will read on the subway. Um, sometimes I'll take myself on solo reading dates to a restaurant or a bar and I'll bring a book and I'll sit and I'll read. Other times I'll come back home and burrow on my couch and I read. There's no real rhyme or reason. I just try to always be in the habit of reading in some way, shape or form. Um, And so I guess my approach is more like in more chaos mode. The one challenge is that I don't read a ton of audiobooks and that's for no other reason other than the like, I have so many books on hand that I want and I could, physically sit and read those, but I can't list or I can't read podcasts and I want to consume podcasts. Mm. So my audio time is dedicated for podcasts. And then my reading time, when I do have an opportunity just like to sit and uh, can't be listening to anything, then I start reading. Um, And so that's kind of, that's my approach. Okay. I have one more follow-up question for you. How do you decide what is reading for work and reading for pleasure for you? Like, is it just backlist is pleasure and anything that's like forthcoming is is work or if it's for the pri- the 10 best books, like, you know, you have to whatever. For me, and I'm curious what you think too, Adam, for me, it's like this like personal feeling of it's, it's this, it's this vibe of just like, I am reading to not do anything for mm. this. Sometimes that means backlist. Sometimes that's like, I've already read it for work purposes. And now I just want to go back and slow down and like read it at my pace and like do my, my annotating and not necessarily other types of research. It's this internal feeling where you just go. It's for me, it's similar to like when the difference between like reading something for school versus reading something for yourself, when you read something Mm -hmm. for school, like you're taking notes for a certain Mm -hmm. purpose, you're taking notes to argue about it. You're taking notes to be able to like come up with a thesis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And like, that's just a different type of mode. And I think that's why a lot of people are like, I read this in school and didn't love it. And then I picked this book back up later and did. Um, So I just try to be like, this is why I love those novels that are just character. It's this like emotional feeling and like (laughs) honesty and intensity and constant searching of like, you know what, I'm reading this for me. And there are times where I'll read a book, first I'll read into it to figure out whether I want to assign it. Then I'll read into it again for fact-checking purposes. And then I will read it a third time. And that's just for me. Um, And that that third time is, that's the time that I will put it on my list as like a book I have read. Those first two times, I do not consider. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Adam, how do you decide? I, yeah, like backlist or like the Zadie Smith novel is reading for fun because I know I'm not going to have to think about it and ask questions or whatever. Um, I also do like a theme of three or four books that I read throughout the year. And this year was like gothic literature. So Frankenstein, Dracula, uh, Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. Last year it was the sea. And so that's just, I read slow. Those are the ones I'm not like trying to get through and taking my time. I also do a lot of Star Wars audiobooks. That okay. is entertaining to me. I do not have to think about these characters. I know who they are <laughs> from the movies. So that is what I do a lot of to shut my brain off. Not that they're not good books and, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah, you know, but uh yeah. That's kind of how I decide. So big authors I know I'm not going to talk to. Like <laughs> Jasmine Ward's book is one of my favorites this year and I that's that was cool. It was just cool to sit with and yeah. not think about. Yeah. What about you, Tracy? You do so much reading for your show, for this prize. Yeah. Yeah. So the prize is different. That feels like work for real, for real. And I'm going to exclude that because that is a list that I'm reading from. So that's like very clearly delineated as work. Um, So in previous years and in future years, reading for me 
I have a list of books that I think that I want to have people on the show. And like that list starts, I think it started in April this year. My first book was Martyr by uh, Kaveh Akbar because Clint Smith mentioned it. And that's when I, that's the book that made me start my list for the year. Um, And so when I read a book that I'm like, oh, I think I might want to have that person on, I'll take notes. So I guess that then becomes work. But a lot of times I'm just reading to read and everything I read sort of feels like work because I post a review of every book that I finish on my Instagram and anything that I read is potentially something that I might end up talking about. Um, like I like to read cookbooks for fun, but I read a cookbook about pies this year and I loved it so much that I was like, I want to have the author on, but I was just reading it to read it. Like, I, like, so it was a pleasure read at the time. And then it became a fun read. Um, that happens. That's happened to me quite a bit this year, um, where I'll read a book and then like, for example, Jasmine Ward. I read the book just because I was like, I love, I want to read her book. Um, and then I got an opportunity to have her on the show. So I was like, but I did actually take notes the first time I read it. Cause I was like, I'm putting it into the universe that she's going to come on the show. <laughs> um, but so I don't know. I try to make everything I read sort of be like pleasure though. Sometimes I have someone coming on the show that I was really excited about because of who they are. And then I start the book and I don't like the book and I have to finish it, which I really fucking hate. And then that's when it really feels like work because for the prize, I don't have to finish anything. For, I just have to start. For you, since you are reading so many books, both for pleasure, but it could be a potential like guest yeah. or a book pick for your show. And then also you're reading so many books probably for work that also seem to align with your interests. For yeah. you, is there that distinction? Like how do you figure out like what's quote unquote work and what's pleasure? And I, like when does I it don't really. morph? Okay. I don't really think it, the only difference is that books that I think are for work, I end up taking notes on. Otherwise, I don't really have a distinction. Like, for example, I picked up We Were Once a Family because I someone told me that they thought I would like it and I loved it so much and then immediately reached out to Roxana's team. But because I was liking it so much, I started taking notes because I was like, oh my God, I would love to have her on. Um, so sometimes it can morph. But also like if a book, for me, if a book is good, it's for pleasure. And if a book is not good, it becomes for work. You know, like if I'm enjoying something, I'm like, this is awesome. Yeah. Regardless of yeah. if I know I'm going to have the person on or not. And if a book starts to feel tedious, then I'm like, this is for work. Like I just finished a book that I absolutely hated. Actually, this happened to me twice this year. Two books I absolutely hated, but I was like, I have to finish them because I really want to review them, but I don't want to review them without finishing them. So then I was like, I'm just going to fucking finish these books so I yeah. can talk shit later. Like, and that <laughs> definitely feels like work. For sure. Um, okay, back to our list. Back to our list. Adam, go. Uh, yeah, I'm going to call an audible and it's, I guess it's still a debut. This was... Uh, when Crack Was King by oh! Donovan uh, X, X Ramsey. Ramsey. I don't normally cover reported nonfiction with A Beautiful. It's usually, like I said, literary, creative, et cetera, creative nonfiction, uh, memoirs. But this I picked up while I was in New York, actually, for my day job. And I had heard so many good things. I think it was long listed already by the time for some awards, you know. The National Book Award. National Book Award, yeah. And I saw it and I was like, okay, I'm going to get it to read on the subway because uh, I didn't have, I didn't bring a book with me. I don't bring books when I'm on vacation. So like, or work trips, which is what? weird. I know. is. <laughs> That's like what I read. <laughs> I just like the opposite for me. Um, I, I mean, I usually anyway. But uh, when Crack was King, Donovan followed four people: Elgin, Lenny, Kurt, and Sean through the crack epidemic and beyond and before. And it wasn't a linear memoir or anything. It just, I think, like the the press, it's like it's kaleidoscopic, kaleidoscopic, yes. and it is. And I usually think that's like a bullshit term that people throw on for many things, but. Uh, yeah, I was blown away. I did, I feel like 
we know nothing about crack except for what white media has told us. Yeah. And this really shaped how I thought about presidencies, about media in the 90s, like after everything, about jokes that I was told as a kid or that I said, right? I think in the, in the, in the prologue, Donovan talks about like crackhead, right? How yeah. we just use it for someone who's acting goofy. But I don't know. It really yeah. shaped me more than any other book this year probably. Mm. And I didn't even like – you know, I just picked it up on a whim because of an award long yeah. list, which whatever, we can go back to that conversation. But yeah, Donovan X. Ramsey blew me away and like honestly changed how I think about an entire timeline of people and, and of an era. Yeah. I'm like gritting so big because this was the book that I took out of my top three. Oh, and I was like, I'm really upset about this because I loved the book. And I love Donovan. He also did the podcast this mm. year and he's so smart and so fantastic. And if you haven't listened to my episode, listen to it, but also listen to him on everything else he did. He did so much media, so good. I do like a list every year of my like favorite books, but I couch it through the questions of the podcast. And one of the questions I always ask is what's the book you'd re require the president to read? And this is the book that I would want Joe Biden to read because I want him to sit in the fucking corner and think about what he did because he mm -hmm. did a lot. In this book and yeah. in the era. Um, I'm so glad. Did you read it, MJ? I haven't. And oh. again, uh, this is why I love like listening to your show and this episode specifically because I always come away with so many book yeah. recommendations. Uh, so I'm going to add this to my list too. I'm glad I decided to throw it in because I was going to list all of like my debuts from Day uh -huh. Beautiful. But yeah, this just, I mean, it was a debut. So I'm glad yes. I read it. But it uh, yeah, when crack was king, the president should read. Yes. For sure. Joe. Um, all right, here is my third pick. I struggled, you guys. I really struggled. I, I couldn't I couldn't decide, but I loved this book. I loved it so much. Uh, it's called Country of the Blind by Andrew Leland. It is a what I call a memoir plus, which is like memoir plus reporting. Mm -hmm. And he has a degenerative eye disease called RP. And he writes about slowly becoming blind. He's diagnosed as a teenager when he gets to like, much more adulthood. He starts to use a cane. He becomes legally blind. He still has some of his vision, but he talks a lot about like what that even means, like what legally blind means and why he's so confused because he always thought when you're blind, all you see is just black, like you don't see anything. So he talks about some of that stuff. But what makes this book spectacular is it's not the memoir part, which is great. It's the plus part. He goes to different blind communities and he goes to like the big like blind association that does all the lobbying and he goes to blind activists and he goes to uh, a home where they teach people who have become blind how to be self-sufficient and, you know, they have to wear blinders the whole time and they learn how to cross the street and they learn how to cook for themselves and do all these things. And it's sort of this, the whole book ends up becoming, and, and again, he was on the show and we talked about this, about blind thought. Like, what does it mean to be culturally blind? Because there's so much about like the deaf culture and deaf community, but there isn't that same thing um, in the blind community, at least as much spoken about. So he kind of like delves into that. And he also talks a lot about his own ableism, his wife's ableism, ableism within the blind community, sort of dissenting opinions about closed captioning. And it's just a really immersive like trip into a world that I really had not 
seriously considered. Like I really, if I'm being honest, had not really thought a lot about blind people and blindness in this way. It's also beautifully written. Like he is such a gifted writer. I was deeply moved by this book. This is one of those books that I picked up and I read and I immediately was like, I have to get Andrew Leland on the show. So I cannot recommend this book more highly for people, especially, I mean, I think for people who have vision problems or like who have, have blindness or, or some form, this book is really powerful. I think for people who have good vision, very good vision, medium vision, you know, wear glasses, but not, you know, are not blind. I think this book is hugely important for those of us who fall into those categories to read and think about because you can not only talk about blindness, but you can also expand out a lot of different abilities. There's a whole section on accessibility and accommodations that changed so much within the way that I was thinking and made me realize like, oh, I'm kind of getting this wrong. Like I hadn't thought about the scope of what an accommodation means. And also I hadn't thought about all the ways I've been accommodated and been felt entitled to accommodation. Mm -hmm. He talks about at one of these like large blind conferences, they keep, they, they pay the electricity bill. And he's like, that's for sighted people. That's an accommodation we make for sighted people. We don't need to pay the electricity bill to have the lights on all day. We are blind. And like, like little things like that where you're like, right, of course. And I, if I walked in there, would be like, what the fuck? Why are the lights off? Why, you know, and it's like, we don't treat that same, those same needs for accommodation for the disabled in the same way that we expect to be as able-bodied people accommodated. So I just love. Um, Tracy, there are a few books that I associate so closely with you because of how passionately you speak about them. <laughs> One of them is, I hope I get the title right, Little Devil in America by oh, Hanif yes. Abdurraki. Yes. Um, you, like that for me, like you are not the author of that book, but that is your book, right? <laughs> <laughs> I am honored. And, someone tell, someone cross off Hanif's name on all the copies. <laughs> I love it. This book is one of those books. I associate Country of the Blind with you because I remember your post. I remember your episode. Like you have, you speak so passionately about it, but like I immediately went and bought it. I haven't read it yet, but I have it. And I'm like, this is Tracy's book. (laughs) I love that because I am, I'm honored because the book is so good. Nothing makes me happier than when people associate me with a really good book, but sometimes people associate me with a book that's like kind of mid and I'm like, oh, I guess my review was not clear. Like, like, okay, that's a note for myself. (laughs) Okay. MJ, you're up. Yes. Um, my third book is YN by Esther Yi. Oh. Um, I save this for last because I feel like I've spoken about it a lot. But for me, this is this is my book of the year. This is okay. the book that I loved so much. The book that I have told everyone about, even if I know that they're like probably not going to like it. And I don't think ev- this book is for everyone. Okay. Um, but even if they don't like it, I'm like, go read this book anyway. Um, <laughs> the book is about a woman, I think she's American, she's living in Berlin, and she becomes obsessed with a member of a K-pop band. And I phrase that specifically because she would say she's not a fan of the band. She's not a fangirl. She is obsessed with specifically this person. Mm. And she uproots her life to follow and find him. So she moves to Korea. He has like left the group and disappeared, and so she's on the hunt for him. The book is so weird (laughs) um like her her obsession with this person is a really her like struggles and figuring out who she is she is able to better understand herself 
through this figure and she's better able to like understand the world and like she feels lost and aimless. And so there are all of these moments where like she kind of pseudo becomes this person. When I say the book is so weird, I mean like there's a scene early on in the book where she's like having sex with her boyfriend and she dissociates as she imagines that she is this person. But then the way that's written about in the book is it reads like the boyfriend is now having sex with this k-pop member because that's how she understands herself and it's so strange and so you're reading it and you're like oh this is like a kind of wild story about fan culture and like the, the boys um they have this like silly name and they call their fans i think they're livers because they say that like they're not just fans they're like a vital organ to them sustaining themselves and like it's it's very ridiculous what this is doing um the character starts writing fan fiction and so you delve into this fan fiction world and so you're reading it and you're like oh this is a wild romp about fan culture and then all of a sudden i was like wait a second no it's not this is about like how we know ourselves and like where we find meaning in an increasingly secular world and like you start seeing this like religious metaphor with this person it's so smart it's so weird it feels i was talking with someone about it and they said it feels like it's turning a corner in fiction it Mm. it, like it the way it's taking these topics that we all are thinking about like meaning and like fandom and all that stuff and like pushes it to its absolute extreme is so fascinating and this is a debut i don't understand it is this is one of those debuts that is so in my mind perfect and announces a brand new voice i hope we hear from for a very long time it's Mm -hmm. thoughtful it's fun it hits both of those things i i I love this book so i love your enthusiasm (laughs) this is i'm i might actually read a novel you guys yes yeah it was so good it was one of those debuts where i don't think i connected with it because of when i read it and i admit that like the debutiful list is like a very specific point of view Mm -hmm. but when I saw her read at the Center for Fiction FET before the award ceremony, I think it started to connect with me. And I was talking to my partner, who I call Lady Day Beautiful. Uh, she was with me and she's like, I, I call my husband Mr. Stacks. <laughs> See, gotta have a cool nickname, right? So uh, we both were saying, I had read it months and months ago. And I, I just hearing it, I think it clicked something in my brain, hearing mm. her read it. And I just want to throw that out there because art is just so subjective. Yeah. And it, it could be I was just having a weird week and I didn't connect with it when I read it or whatever. But anyway, yeah. YN, yes. I'm glad you I recommended it. it. Okay. Our 10th and final book. I um I have I have a feeling that everyone here has at least read this book. I'm gonna go out on a limb. It's been on all the lists. I think of all the books of the year, this has been the most <laughs> listed, nominated, celebrated book for very good reason. Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. Yes. Absolutely. A so thousand good. percent. Yes. It's, it, I read it before it came out. Mm-hmm. And I said, holy shit. The analogy I used was Nana is Simone Biles. Everyone else <sighs> is doing three flips. He's attempting four. And I, I think I even said this to him when he was on the show. I was like, I don't think this novel is perfect. Like, I think this is the novel, like an a incredible, incredibly ambitious novel by a young author who I am so excited about. Mm. It is so ambitious. I think you were saying this about um, Burnham Wood that like it is talking about, or no, about the fraud. It's talking about so many things in our society, in our culture. It's speculative fiction. It's about 
they're called chain gangs. They're prisoners who are convicted for 25 years to light or 25 years or more. They can opt into the chain gang where they fight to the death in these like American gladiator type fights. If you win, you live, you move on. If you lose, you are dead. And if you do it for three years, you earn your freedom. And it's about the culture that would watch this, which is American culture. <laughs> it's about the prison system. It's about capitalism. It's about this interpersonal relationship at the center between two of the women who are um, on the same chain gang. And then there's like all these footnotes about real history. It's just doing the most in a really fantastic way. So I love this book. I'm thrilled for Nana because I loved Friday Black yes. and I thought the same about him then. I was like, this is not a perfect collection, but whatever he does next, I'm going to read. And I think, and I think that Chain Gang is very close to perfect, but like, you know, like I really loved it, but I, there were things where I was like, Ooh, I wonder what he would do with this in 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know? I also loved this book. Um, I have also, this is one of those books that I have recommended to everyone as well. Yeah. And this is one like why I'm like, you might not like this. Changing All Stars, I'm like, you will love this. Yeah. Um, I remember there was one time I broke my phone and I was trying to get a, a replacement, and the person's like, Oh, you're a book editor. Like, what should I read? And I recommended this one. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. it's the book I've talked, spoken to people about probably the most. And I feel like I've said this so often, it is such a singular book, which mm -hmm. is sounds like um a controversial thing to say because of the Hunger Games-ness of it all, right? right. That's, that's another right, book right, right, where right. there's like killing and death for sport and entertainment. However, Nana's political commentary, mm -hmm. his directness, mm -hmm. his um, vividness with those action scenes. And like, mm -hmm. if you think about the Hunger Games too, think about like where that cuts away and yeah. where Nana Kwame uh, like, um, Ajay does not. Um, there is, it's, it's taking a huge swing and it yeah. pulls it off. And, and that's what I mean by singular. And like Nana has this like um, simultaneously like very like witty voice, but also very probing and very mm -hmm. serious. I mm -hmm. think about, for instance, in um, Friday Black, like uh, uh, the Finkelstein Five, yes. which is about like, um, it's like looking at, um, the trials of ki uh, black kids who have been killed um, in the name of quote unquote self-defense. And that one is about this man who like took a chainsaw and killed five kids. And like, yeah. there is something so earnest and serious, but mm -hmm. written in this like fantastic, surreal kind of way. And that's what this does to me yeah. too. Like the, the, the plottiness of it does not diminish the pointedness of the political mm -hmm. commentary and vice versa. The political commentary does not diminish just how, like absorbing the story is. Yeah. Yeah. When you said it was your most recommended book, same. That's what I was thinking. I think I recommended this to every single person who asked <laughs> me what they should read. Friday Black is one of my favorite collections. The Fingalstein Five is a top five short story of all time for me. Mm -hmm. uh, it changed me thinking about a short story is this to, oh, this is what you can do with literature and mm -hmm. you can do with fiction. And uh, I always say it takes three books for someone to be a favorite author of mine. Uh, Nana with two books has surpassed what people have done with 10 books. Yeah. Like flat I out. That. I think he's uh, what his Twitter handle is like King NK. He yeah. is the king of literature <laughs> and what he'll do next will blow us all away. I'm pretty I sure. I know. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. He needs to take a rest though. He's been on tour in so he's, he's been like, doing it. 
so busy because it's so good. Um, Okay. Before we get out of here, we always do this at the end of the year. We talk a little bit about what we anticipate for 2024 as far as reading, what kind of books, any trends we see coming. And then I want you guys to just mention maybe two books you're really excited about for 2024. Are there any, or, or, or do you have any predictions? Are there any things you think that you're seeing now that might carry over or any... I don't know. We started doing this like really during the pandemic and it was like, oh, we're going to get pandemic novels all of a sudden. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, That's a great question. My predictions for 2024. I feel like just based off of some of the books I'm seeing getting early buzz, I think there's going to be a lot more very sharp satires (laughs) coming out. And because of my job, I have to like, I do a lot of secret reading. I do a lot of reading that I cannot talk about. So I can't say specific titles. I am seeing a lot of very, very sharp, lively satire. There's Um, literally three that have already popped into my head since you said that sentence. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, What about you, Adam? Any? Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of books like Nana, who is writing something very serious with a specific twisted point of view mm-hmm. that is genre or uh speculative mm-hmm. but is it really you know because yeah. it's like a, a hairline away from being speculative so close yeah okay my prediction and it might actually be 2025 but my prediction is that we are gonna get all of the celebrity memoirs oh. that we did not want because of the writer strike and the sag strike i think at the end of next year, we are getting all the people we didn't want. It's coming. And I love a celebrity memoir, so I will be reading many of them. Mm -hmm. But my big fear is that the end, like these books are coming out quick. They were written in two months while they were home. Like Kevin Hart, it's coming. Uh. Like though, I mean, Kevin Hart has a few books, but it, you know, it's coming. The Rock it's coming. Jennifer Aniston, it's coming. Like, I just, I don't care, but I'm going to get it and I'm going to read it and I'm going to hate it. That's my prediction. You're so right. And I didn't, con- yeah, we are done. <laughs> They're coming. Yeah. They're coming. Wow. Okay. What are your two books you're the most excited about that you can talk about, MJ? <laughs> Adam, so, you go first. MJ has to think. I He's will like, go first. I'm going to list two January books just so okay. people can buy them right after right this podcast okay. is out. Um, the, the first book is The Storm We Made by Vanessa Chan, mm. which I think is all over the internet. But it is, yeah, it's like historical fiction, just so well written. You've read uh, it. Yeah. She, I'm actually uh, recording a podcast with her in 15 minutes from oh, after we record this. <laughs> Um, what are the odds? And then yeah. uh, Christina Cook, Bratopsy, uh, oh. which also comes out in January. Like Jamaican sisters that are estranged, dealing with family and then coming together. Again, I love sibling stories. I lived with my sister in our 20s. So oh. I think that has like embedded in myself, the estrangeness coming together. But yeah, uh, two books, Christina Cook and Vanessa Chan, January. Add them to your TBR list now. Um, get them next month. Love it. MJ? I unfortunately cannot say specific titles that I, me personally, loved just because I can't but talk about books until they But you can say things maybe you haven't read that you know are coming that you're excited about? Yes. And okay. these are ones that I think I'm not just excited about. I just think 
everyone who loves literature is excited about them because these are return uh, uh, return novels from big authors. Yes. Percival Everett has a new book yes. coming out. Mm. I don't know how he's writing as much as he's writing. He's had like a huge new book every single every year, year for the past few years. It, um, Erasure, which I just read for the first time earlier this year, was just made into American fiction, that movie. I don't know how he's so prolific and also does not miss ever. <laughs> does not miss. Um, and so that's when I'm just like... I'm very excited to get my hands on and to dive into and like, I will read anything that he writes and yeah. the fact that he has another book, I'm, I'm like anticipating that one. And then also like Garrett Connolly um, has a new book coming out. He wrote the memoir Boy Erased and he has a new oh, novel yeah. coming out. Um, Helen Oyeyemi, um, the queen of magical realism. <laughs> um, she has a new book coming out. And so I feel like I can't say like specific Titles. We can talk offline about yeah. some other books that I'm really excited about. But I think next year there are some big books coming from some big favorite authors that are on my radar. Um, and so that I can say. Okay. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. There. Okay. So I'm going to just to, to piggyback off Percival Everett because that was one on my list. But also his wife, Danzy Senna, one of my faves, has a new book coming out, Colored Television, that is satire as well. It doesn't come out till July. So you have to wait a little bit. It's like July 30th. But it's about a writer who is writing her, what her husband calls her mulatto pride and pride, or no, her mulatto crime and punishment. And she decides she's going to go work in TV just to like help her like get her shit together. And she basically works for like a Kenya Barris type guy, like a mixed a person like obsessed with like mis- mixed race culture because Dancy Senna is like the queen of mixed kids um, with Caucasia and new people. So I'm super excited about that. I'm also excited. No surprise. Hanif Abdurraqib has a new book coming out called There's Always This Year. It's about basketball and culture and performance. And I love him and I'll read anything he reads. And just a reminder, if you haven't read A Little Devil in America, <laughs> you can get your copy of that book. <laughs> <laughs> anywhere books are sold. And then my last one is a book called A Fire So Wild. And I have to be honest, this book, I'm only, the only reason I'm excited about it or even know about it, it's a debut. Adam, get it on the show, February. Um, <laughs> she, I met her at a book event. So we were both going to see Kashana Kali talk about the survivalists. And I walk into Reparations Club and she's wearing a Stax sweatshirt. And I was like, I've never seen a stranger wearing Stax merch in the wild. So after the thing, I like walk up to her and I'm like, I'm sorry, this is so weird. But like, that's my, and she was like, oh my God. And I was like, oh my God. I started crying and turns out she's an author and she's publishing her debut book. So I would never have known about this book if not for that moment. And she's like a member of the Stax pack or whatever, but the book sounds fantastic. It's climate fiction set in Northern California, which is where I'm from. And it's about like, there's a fire coming and it's about like all the class distinctions in Berkeley, California and like the like do good white lady who's like, you know, all of a sudden confronted. It just sounds really good. It sounds like there's a lot of plot. So I'm really excited about this debut of a person who wears Stacks merch. So if you want me to be excited about your debut, go to the stackspodcast.com slash shop and get yourself a sweatshirt. Um, <laughs> you guys are amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. This is a long episode, but I don't care. I think it was so much fun. I think our list is really good. Again, I didn't know what we were going to put together, but I'm like, I feel very proud of this one. So MJ, thank you so much. Adam, thank you so much. Um, Subscribe to the New York Times. Subscribe to Day Beautiful. uh, Support these wonderful book humans and connect with them on social media. I'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. So fun. 
everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all for listening. And thank you again to Adam Bitcavage and MJ Franklin for joining the show. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for December is Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare, which we will discuss on Wednesday, December 27th with Farah Kareem Cooper. If you love this show and you want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, threads, and TikTok, and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And you can check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 